Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. Why we behave the way we do is an interesting field of study. But why we behave the way we do with money, well, that can be fascinating. And that's what Nick Roth and Ryan English are here to talk about. I'm Patrice Sikora. Ryan, are you trying to tell me that we investors are not always rational with our money? Well, Patrice, that could be the case. Behavioral finance is a topic, an intangible topic, that has to do with more of an investor's underlying tendencies or biases. Not necessarily the evaluation of an investment based on quantitative or hard numbers or even qualitative aspects of a company. It's buying and selling an investment based on emotion. Kale, this is terrible. Tell me more, Nick. Yeah, Patrice, you know, Ryan might not tell you that uh, people make emotional decisions, but I'm here to tell you that they do. A Vanguard study that was done shows that behavioral coaching, uh, just that specific subsector of what a financial advisor can provide to clients, provides up to 1.5% in annual return or value add to an investor experience. So there is value in an advisor helping clients through behavioral coaching, uh, which is what we're going to talk about today. So what are some of the things we have to be aware of or that we are not aware of? Well, Patrice, I mean, the academic world has has defined a number of common biases in behavioral finance. I mean, it is, it's almost a full-blown major at this point. There's uh there's some common ones that they've identified. The first would be mental accounting, uh, for example. And we would see clients look at, say, different account types, a taxable account, a trust account, an IRA or a Roth IRA, and ask why the performance for those different account types might be different. But it's more about asset location, owning different assets in those account types. And so they're not all going to grow at the same rate. But in a mental accounting standpoint, you kind of have these accounts in buckets thinking that the return for the overall should be evenly distributed amongst the, all of the accounts. And that is not necessarily the case. You can educate people about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a tax reason to be holding things in different accounts, right? So there's a specific reason that it is perform each account is performing differently. Uh, and that's asset location that Ryan mentioned, and we've talked about on different podcasts before. Another bias that clients have or individual investors have a lot is a herd mentality as well. And a perfect example of this is meme stocks that we heard about over the last few years. They've Investors have even come up with phrases to try and encourage herd mentality. We've heard of diamond hands and paper hands over the last few years. And basically diamond hands means intentionally holding a stock and calling that an accomplishment, even if the stock has not performed well. Uh, and paper hands would be the exact opposite. When a stock doesn't perform well, you sell it. And that's supposed to be a derogatory term against investors who aren't willing to hold a stock with the rest of the herd. So just a really great example of a very public situation going on that represents one of these biases. 
Right. And anchoring is another very popular or common bias. And that really has to do with where a stock is currently trading at compared to where it is historically traded at. You know, P&G is probably a good example. You know, P&G, say if it's $150 in the current environment, some longtime investors in P&G draw the conclusion, oh, the stock is expensive. It's higher than it was. And if it were to decline, you know, substantially, say, to $75 a share, you know, they might think that, you know, that's a very low price for P&G. But really, they're anchoring to certain levels of prices. And what really matters is the underlying business fundamentals of where that stock will be trading at, at a particular time or in the long run. Another example of one of these biases is uh, mental shortcuts. And this is something that I think we've all done at some point in our lives is come up with easy ways to make decisions because there's so many decisions that we have to make on a daily basis. So being able to come up with quick tricks to make those decisions easier, you know, in college, as I was learning about this and before I kind of knew the full scope of what evaluating an investment meant. I would reduce these massive companies to just a few metrics, right? And if they met a couple of metrics, then they were a good investment. And that's just not the case. You can't reduce companies to just a few metrics. These are huge multinational conglomerates that have so many different things going on that there, it really takes a, a underlying understanding of what the business does to be able to make an appropriate investment decision. So those mental shortcuts can really get people into trouble because they also lead into the next bias that we're going to talk about, which is confirmation bias. Um, and that's the bias that you find information that supports your original thesis, right? So not only do you have these shortcuts, but then you go find the information that confirms what you already think about a company. So for example, if you think that Tesla is a really great company because they are making electric vehicles and helping the environment, right? Then you're going to go seek out information that confirms that and let you invest in them uh, when they may or may not be a good investment at the end of the day. You do that with people too. People don't seek out different points of view generally. They, they want people to agree with their thesis. And another aspect is recency bias. At times, whatever the most recent information or the most recent article that someone read regarding the investment, they will take that to mean that's the most important aspect of why this investment should be made and act upon that just because it was the most recent piece of information. And then loss aversion. It's easier for investors to sell their winners than it is to realize losses. The pain of losing a hundred dollars in an example is is much greater than the pain or than the benefit of gaining a hundred hundred dollars. So just because an investment has a loss, it is it makes it more difficult for investors to kind of chalk it up to a mistake or you know, maybe the information has changed and to swap it for something else. These are a lot of biases here, though, guys. These are a lot. And these are all things that we as advisors can help people with, right? Back to that loss aversion example really quick. You know, 
especially if somebody experiences a loss in a stock and that gives them a negative outlook on what the stock market might be, that might be an unfair outlook. They might may have just invested in a bad period of time, right? And then they could compound that poor decision or or that bias, right, with another decision to not invest in stocks in the future, which would hurt them and could hurt them in the long run, right? So there's this kind of compounding effect that can take place with many of these biases that hurts people over long periods of time. And that's what we're here to stop or prevent. I would think in the last year or so, you've had plenty of time to practice this. Yeah, it's been a that's, that's for great sure. time to be an advisor. Then again, Patrice, you could probably say that about most periods, right? That's true. That's absolutely true. But it has been a little rocky, and I'm sure people have sat back and said, wait a minute, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And if you can point something out to them, like a bias. Well, let me ask you this, too. When you point out a bias to them, how do they take it? You know, it's natural for people to not like to hear that they're biased about something, but everybody is participating in these biases in one way or another, right? So it's not individual people that are just uh, really the problem. It's everybody is subject to these in one way or another. Yeah. And I wouldn't really describe it as, you know, we're pointing out biases, Um you know, our job is really to educate and explain our investment philosophy and how we think about the world and, you know, teach clients, educate clients about, you know, these are the things that we expect and these are the things that could happen. Yeah, I think there's a couple of examples that kind of highlight that our job as advisors is also, as much as it is to educate and, and help people make good decisions, it's also as I said, to help people avoid bad decisions, right? And when we're stuck in the middle of this and trying to get people to take action and make good decisions, right? Sometimes we're willing to accept the fact that you're not making the best decision every single time, right? If inaction on something is a significantly worse outcome than a baby step in the right direction, even though there's this better alternative out there, then that's, you know, an acceptable outcome for us as advisors. You know, obviously we're going to encourage you to take that bigger step and and do what you can, but I think Dave Ramsey is a great example of having extreme success in this field um with his idea of a debt snowball, right? His idea is always pay off your lowest balance debt first so that you can wipe that off the books. Well, if you think about that financially, That's not actually the best financial advice you could ever give. That's the best emotional advice, maybe. But if you have a credit card that has a $10,000 balance with a 20% interest rate, for example, it would be way more beneficial for you financially to pay that off before maybe a $5,000 debt with a 5% interest rate, right? But Dave Ramsey has found that if you if people can pay off one debt, then that encourages them to pay off future debts, even if that's not necessarily the best financial decision at a given point in time. Yeah, and Patrice, from an investment standpoint, I think um, yeah. I mean two famous investors, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, talk about you know invest in companies that you know their products or services, and can understand. You know, I think that what they 
partially leave out in that aspect is, you know, it matters what price you pay. It matters in terms of discipline on what that business is worth and what price you're willing to pay. So, you know, what they don't mention, of course, is that, you know, they're, they're not hearing these tips from friends at a cocktail party <laughs> and sort of buying at any price. So it takes some discipline and not necessarily just buying something that, you know, that has a very high price. I think the key here, and I mentioned it earlier in, in my own experience investing, is recognizing your own self-deception maybe can be hugely valuable to people. You know, mistakenly thinking that we know more than we do at the end of the day can really hurt people over a long period of time. Because if you compound bad decision after bad decision and not knowing that you're making a bad decision, you know, you can put yourself in a real hole. And we're here to help people avoid that to the extent that we can. To piggyback on that, I mean, there's an old saying that uh, I kind of like to quote. It's um, it's not what you don't know in investing that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure. <laughs> That's so true. And you are so sure that you are sure. Yes. So as advisors, what can you do? You've been mentioning that you can help guide and educate, but tell us more about that. Yeah, Patrice, I mean, investing is difficult enough from a quantitative and a qualitative aspect of, you know, reading financial statements, discussing business models. So, you know, we feel one of the important things that we can help clients with is to take these emotions off the table, to take the mistakes of buying high or selling low or, you know, being in cash, take those off the table and bring a disciplined approach as an advisor to help them grow their wealth. Yeah. And like I've alluded to, it's about making a lot of good, small decisions over a long period of time. You know, we don't portray or or try to pull the rug out for under people and say that we're going to make you a lot of money really quickly, right? That's not the goal. The goal is to help you make good decisions and compound those good decisions with more good decisions. And to be honest, it only takes one or two, maybe three meetings a year with clients to be able to make all of those good decisions that people need to make in any given year. And if we can have those, call it two meetings and get in front of the client and make sure that they're doing the things that they need to do, you know, having us as an accountability partner is is really powerful. And we've had a lot of success with that model. So, And then at the end of the day at Foster and Motley, there are basically two goals in theory for financial advisors. Yeah. And uh, from a benchmark objective, there's two goals. I mean, the first would be for client investments to outperform benchmarks or indexes, comparably speaking, to what we are investing for them on their behalf. And then, you know, there's financial planning goals in terms of the ability to spend a certain amount of money in retirement or leave X dollars in legacy to the next generation or or charitable intent. And so that requires also a certain annualized return as referenced against inflation or consumer price index. So, you know, we look at those two measures quantitatively to evaluate client portfolios and um, whether or not they are achieving goals. And I think a lot of times the client goals are at odds with what the best financial decision might be at any given time. So we've kind of talked about this um kind of good, better, best 
thought process potentially. The best financial decision would always be to not spend that extra dollar, right? Because then you still have that dollar. But that's not how people live their life. And that's not how clients want to live their life. And our, our job is to make sure that they're successful from a financial perspective, but also meeting all their other goals. And having that combination is, is like I said, really powerful. Great discussion, gentlemen. How can listeners reach you? Patrice, the best way would be for listeners to engage with us on our website and visit www.fosterandmotley.com. And one thing that may be very rational would be to follow this Foster and Motley podcast about life and wealth, and of course, share it with others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Keep in mind that rules and regulations are subject to change. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.